This week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Vincero Watches. Listeners right now can head over to VinceroWatches.com to get 20% off their entire first purchase of a beautifully crafted and eye-catching Vincero watch by using the promo code CHEF. That's C-H-E-F at checkout. Check out all of the styles, designs, and everything that has made Vincero one of the most in-demand watches in the world at VinceroWatches.com. Before we begin this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I would like to thank everyone for continuing to spread the word about the show. I have received a lot of emails from listeners, and it has been amazing to hear from you and about all of your lives and where you live. If you want to write into the show to say hi or to give a shout out to a restaurant or for any reason, you can do that by emailing letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. Finally, this week's episode is another installment of the very popular Litz Review, which has me rating everything on a five-star scale. This week, I will be reviewing Stress and also my grandmother Elizabeth's Mac and Cheese. Other past Litz Review episodes include the restaurants and concept of Momofuku, Alouette in Toronto, the anonymous hot dog vendor outside of the Rogers Centre, and we have even reviewed Salt. You can find all of our Let's Review episodes along with every other episode of the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, the Alexa in Your House, iHeartRadio, and anywhere else you can think of to listen to podcasts. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. Let's review stress. Stress when you are a chef is an inevitable fact of your daily life. I realize and fully understand that stress is in everybody's life and it's entirely inevitable. We all feel stress. There's worrying about money, mortgages, relationships, friends, the never-ending battle of wondering if you are, despite all of your misgivings, living and acting like an adult should. Stress when there's traffic. Stress when you're going to be late. Stress when you didn't get enough sleep and on and on and on. In today's society, we are all stressed out zombies that are very good at hiding it. But being a chef is quite possibly one of the most stressful jobs you can have. The world that chefs and cooks live in is not like the one that you see on television. There are no bespeckled men throwing a basket of three ingredients at me every day and telling me to come up with a dish and then judging me on it. We don't stand around talking about ingredients in long-form conversations and making analogies to different modernist paintings we saw while we spent a day off at an art gallery. And while we plate food, orchestral music is not playing in the background. In reality, this is more like it. We do not, in most cases, have the time to create anything. Our days are filled up making sure that our cooks are alright, making sure that the produce came in correctly, making sure that the prep is done not just for today but for tomorrow and for the weekend. How many reservations are there? Who booked what days off and that are going to be impossible to give to them? Am I meeting labor costs? Am I meeting food costs? What is the weather going to be like tomorrow, in an hour, this evening, next week? The sous chef is breaking up with his girlfriend again, which means that he will be getting drunk tonight. And thankfully the restaurant is closed tomorrow, otherwise he would have to be in tomorrow at 9am, which wouldn't happen. The minute you walked into work, you saw the pork belly was overcooked. The walk-in is a mess, and you're going to have to spend another half hour of time you don't have cleaning it. The cook, whose boyfriend is in prison, checks her phone constantly to see if he's calling her, which you understand, but also it gets kind of annoying every time her phone makes a sound to have her whip it out and check to see if it's another collect call that will have her running outside to talk to him. 
Oh, and the, the reason that you don't stop her from being on her phone at all is because her boyfriend that is in prison was up until a very short time ago one of your best cooks. And the kitchen cheers up when she comes back inside and tells everyone that he says hello. You watch the chit times. You watch the wait times. You watch how long it takes for the server to run something. You juggle the schedule trying to make sure everyone has enough hours. You have figured the food out. You have figured out the specials. You have balanced the mix of anger and not giving a fuck when a server who has asked you a hundred times if there is gluten in the fish asks again if there could be no gluten in the fish, and you then proceed to tell her what gluten is again. All of this happens while in a high-paced and very hot environment with fire, knives, oil, and constantly food is being made, prepped, served, and plated all around you, and you have to control and see every single dish. You spend your drive home trying to think about how you could have done better, what you could have done better, and what will happen tomorrow. And then as you lie awake at night at one in the morning, you think to yourself, did I call the produce in? This is not me making stuff up. This was my day yesterday. Someone once asked me if being a chef is a fun job because their kid wanted to be a chef because they liked the Food Network. And what should they do to become one? In that moment, I had two options. One, I could stand there and wax poetic about the glories of what I do for a living, the rewarding parts, the creative parts, the 5% of my day that I spend creating food, and fill this teenager with a sense of wonder and excitement about the idea of cooking food for a living. Or I could be honest and crush their dreams with the reality of fear and stress being the driving force in wanting to lead a kitchen. So I went for option two. I told that teenager the same thing that I tell everyone when it comes to being a chef and how to become a chef. And so here it is. I know and understand that this is based solely upon the geography of where I live, but you can simply change the cities and countries to suit your needs. There are 7,500 restaurants in the city of Toronto, Ontario. One can safely assume that that means there are around 5,000 chefs, 8,000 sous chefs, and if each restaurant on average has 10 cooks, which is a very low number, there are between 63,000 and 83,000 cooks in Toronto alone. There are 15 culinary schools in Toronto. That is another several thousand people that are training to do what I do for a living every year. Now take that number and multiply it by the province of Ontario. Now take that number and multiply it by the country of Canada. Now, to really freak yourself out, take that number and do that with cities like New York, Los Angeles, and London, England, where the restaurants that matter are. And you suddenly come to the very real realization that there are millions of people who are working harder than you, training harder than you, reading more cookbooks than you, watching more, learning more, working for better chefs than you can, are better connected and quite frankly are more talented than you ever will be or could hope to be. That is millions upon millions of cooks who are trying more, learning more, that want it more than you do. So you have to work harder. You have to learn more. You have to know more. You have to be better, be faster, and be luckier than millions of others who all want it just as much as you do. And if that doesn't scare you into not wanting to be a chef, then welcome aboard. The real truth about the stress of leadership is the one thing that most chefs and cooks do not talk about. It's that eventually you come to crave the stress. You look forward to the stress. The nights when the restaurant is impossibly full. The orders are coming in at such a pace you haven't heard the chip machine stop to take a break all night. And as you look at the board with the dozens of pieces of white and yellow paper, your brain begins to form a pattern. You see through the mess of modifications. You see through the steak temperatures and which sauces go with what. You see through the verbal pickups and the printed ones and you slip into that comfortable state and get through it. 
I like to compare that mode of work to when you're driving in a car and suddenly snap out of whatever and wherever your brain was and realize that you have been driving for 20 minutes without realizing you were driving for 20 minutes and you wonder how it was not possible that you didn't crash. That's the same thing that happens every night on the line for me. That's how my brain deals with stress. And I look forward to getting back there. The instant problem solving and then gratification of seeing the food go out properly and of seeing the team working together like a fucked up orchestra, watching and moving a highly complicated version of modern dance every night, ducking and weaving around knives and oil and other people. And it's only happened a few times in my career, but I can honestly tell you that there is a magic to not having to communicate with the person you are online with at all. You are so in sync with one another that when I hold out my hand during the stress dream, the plate is put into it that I need, without asking for it. And Rob, who is also in the stressed out witching hour as well, he doesn't really even know what he's doing. But the two of us can pump more food out without speaking than I have ever seen or heard of, and most of the time it's soundtracked by Whitney Houston singing I'm Every Woman, or for some strange reason we've been playing Lady Antebellum's Need You Now on repeat because it's funny to see the server's faces come back, and also it's a really good song. Because of how much stress I and chefs like me deal with on a daily basis, the menial tasks of life outside of the kitchen are so easy to accomplish when held in comparison to our jobs that life itself becomes kind of wonderful. Oh, you, you need to paint a wall. No problem. Laundry needs to be done. Dinner needs to be made. Grocery shopping. I don't know how many times I have said corner while rounding the aisles at the grocery store, but because my brain is hardwired for efficiency and speed, I can make a normal 30-minute shopping trip last about three minutes. Being a chef and dealing with being a chef makes us better at dealing with life. The stress that you feel at work is so challenging to overcome that the only way to overcome it is to become an organized, fast, efficient, and slightly OCD ninja of a person. And that's what chefs are. That's what we are trained to do. Chefs are a different breed of human being. When you are in the wild and you meet another chef, there is an instant respect level because you know and understand what the other has been through because you yourself have been through it and survived it. There is a comfort to that. There is a comfort in knowing that you are not the only crazy one and that there is a sort of a weird fraternity of other highly organized and highly obscure people exactly like you. And we got there because of the stress. And we crave the stress. And we have mastered the stress. Because we're chefs. I'm giving stress five stars. And I wonder if I ever 
This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Saks Underwear. Okay, guys, we need to have an honest conversation about what you're wearing. Because if it isn't Saks, you are missing out on what Forbes magazine has voted to be the best underwear ever. A few months ago, I was just like you. I wore boxers and briefs in various origins and didn't ever really think or care about what I was wearing under my pants because who really thinks about that? Then I was given a few pairs of Saks as a gift and I can honestly tell you that my life changed. Saks are not only comfortable, breathable, and stylish, they also support you in such an amazing way that in my case holds up to the heat and sweat of the kitchen like nothing else. Right now, if you head over to Saks.com, that's S-A-X-X dot com, you can get 10% off your purchase of what is truly the greatest underwear in existence. After I started wearing Saks, I told my coworkers, I told my father, I told Tim, I told everyone, and now I'm telling you. And ladies, if you're listening and you want to get the man in your life underwear that will actually improve his mood and make him happy, honestly, you can do no better than giving him some Saks. Head on over to Saks.com to get 10% off. And now, back to the show. Let's review Queen Elizabeth's Mac and Cheese. My father's mother, my grandmother, was quite possibly the most interesting woman I have ever met in my entire life. Not interesting in a unique and educational way. Interesting in the sense that you could not understand how it was somehow possible for this abrasive and cold Irish woman, and she managed to maintain relationships with her three sons while also staying married to my grandfather for 65 plus years, all while being a terrible and self-absorbed human being. Elizabeth was an enigma. She was, of course, lovely, obsessed with her appearance and was always oddly fascinated with the teeth and straight smiles of all of my girlfriends who had the unfortunate mishap to have been stuck coming to a family gathering and having to meet her. It should be pointed out that at most of these gatherings, my grandfather Kenneth would sit in the corner in an armchair holding a scotch and conducting along to Frank Sinatra, which he would turn up as loud as possible. I have since come to believe that Ken was not hard of hearing, he just wanted it loud so he could be left alone for a while. I am also confident that my mother hated Elizabeth, and that the feeling was in fact mutual. My grandfather's last words to my father while lying on his deathbed in Waterloo, Ontario were, Good luck with her. I can attest to this because I was in the room. Kenneth died with a smile on his face, and I believe to this day the reason that he shuffled off of this mortal coil happier than anyone I have ever seen was due to the fact that his sentence of being married to the she-devil had finally ended. I absolutely adored Elizabeth. She was and remains to be one of my favorite people. My father's mother did not cook. She came up being a mother at a time when television, Swanson's family dinners, and going out to prime rib restaurants to show off your latest fur coat were all of the rage. She threw cocktail parties and euchre games constantly, lived in an impeccably clean and always up-to-date furnished home, and always had a tray of cigarettes on the coffee table for guests despite the fact that neither she nor my grandfather smoked. She was a socialite, who kept ice in the cooler ready at all times and the bar well stocked for the slightest chance that guests would stop by, and they usually always did stop by. She lived in the fantasy that the show Mad Men showed all of us, and as we watched thought, there's no way people lived like this. Well, they did, and Elizabeth was one of them. Despite having no discernible skills in the kitchen, my grandmother did one thing extraordinarily well. She knew she was the best at, and she also knew that when I arrived with my family to the condo on the water near Toronto, I would be craving. 
my grandmother made the best macaroni and cheese casserole in the world. I feel confident in making this statement because as I have been lucky enough to travel all over the United States, Canada, and Europe, and everywhere that it was available, I would order macaroni and cheese, and although I have had some very good versions, my grandmother's was better. Of course, I am very aware that my grandmother's version of macaroni and cheese probably tasted the best to me because it is the literal benchmark in my mind of when perfected what mac and cheese should taste like. Just like your mother's version of meatloaf or your own version of an omelette that you ate on Sunday mornings with your family growing up, to you is the best. But, and I need to be specific here for a moment, I am a chef. I have eaten thousands and made thousands of macaroni and cheese casseroles, and Elizabeth's, despite my childhood longing extreme bias and noodle-based prejudice, was actually the greatest one I have ever had. The meals of mac and cheese at my grandmother's table were always accompanied by my grandfather's coleslaw, ketchup squeezed out of a bougie red short squeeze bottle from the 60s, and usually Frank Sinatra or Jean Krupa on the turntable. My grandfather would be drinking scotch and humming along to old blue eyes, while Elizabeth would be wearing her Sunday best, always having gone to the hairdressers before we arrived to freshen up her perm, and would correct my sisters Catherine, Stephanie, and I on proper dinner table etiquette, like don't slouch, no elbows on the table, never say you're full, always say you had sufficient, like we were preparing to dine with a sultan when we were in reality eating one of the most humble dishes imaginable. I cannot recall how many times I ate my grandmother's macaroni and cheese. I cannot recall even how many times we drove to their condo. I do remember times like when I was very sick around 10 years old, my father brought me to their condo for a few days so they could take care of me. And while my grandfather went to the nearest blockbuster and rented me all three of the original Star Wars trilogy, my grandmother made me mac and cheese to eat while I watched for the first time Luke Skywalker save the galaxy while also awkwardly attempting galactic incest with his sister. A fact that still bugs me to this day. I remember a very long rant my grandmother had one time about the price of McDonald's going up, and another time she spent the entire meal complaining about my grandfather's driving skills, all while she sat there in their dining room without a driver's license. But mostly when I think about Elizabeth's mac and cheese, I think about their little kitchen, the linoleum floor, the at one time modern fluorescent light, and my grandmother with her hair in curlers and telling me to look away as she wasn't wearing any makeup and yet getting things ready to make me the meal that I thought she was the best in the world at making. Years later, having been a line cook for a while and Elizabeth at the age of 95 and a few years into crippling Alzheimer's, I got the phone call while at work on a busy Tuesday night that she was not going to be able to be fabulous on this earth for very much longer, and I dropped my knife and got into my car and drove the one hour to the hospital as fast as I could. Elizabeth was there in her nightgown, her hairbrush was on the table, makeup sorted neatly on the counter, and her outfit for the next morning folded on the chair next to her that she would never wear. She was lying there weaker than I had ever seen her, barely recognizing the family that stood around her. I rushed into the room and kneeled down beside her bed and whispered, It's Brian, I'm here. Her eyes lit up, her face broke into a smile, and whatever awful demons that were controlling her brain from the Alzheimer's went away for a few minutes. I'm sorry I look so dreadful, darling, she said. These awful nurses won't let me wear my makeup. You look beautiful, Grandma, I said. How is cooking going, darling, she asked. It's great, Grandma, it really is. But there is one thing I wanted to ask you. Anything, darling, she said, her ancient and slightly cold hand resting on top of mine. Grandma, can I have your mac and cheese recipe, the one you always made me? 
Elizabeth looked at me with all of the love and affection a grandmother can have. Her eyes were full of warmth. Her smile filled my heart. And she leaned close to me and whispered into my ear, No. Elizabeth died shortly after this. She took her secrets to her grave as well as the recipe cards for her mac and cheese. She was vindictive, and she was evil and a wonderful human being, and she is the most beautiful woman I have ever known. Not unlike the sexist pie fiasco of my other grandmother, being denied access to the life-changing macaroni recipe has caused months of work, research, testing, money I couldn't afford to spend, and countless nights of indigestion after consuming another failed attempt. I will be honest with you. I never came close to replicating her recipe. But I did come close, like a really close 7 out of 10. Although I am and will always be humorously frustrated with the fact that the greatest macaroni recipe is food for worms now, there is a small part of my brain that is happy I can't make it. If Elizabeth had given me the recipe, I wouldn't think about her every time I make macaroni, walk by macaroni in the grocery store, hear Frank Sinatra or Gene Krupa, drink or smell scotch, or even hear anyone say anything about Star Wars, and that's why I think she did it, so that I would remember her. I think about her more because she didn't give me that recipe than if she had, and she knew that would happen, and that is some next-level evil genius planning that I have nothing but respect for. Elizabeth made my life better. She took care of me when I was sick. She told me that every girlfriend I ever had wasn't good enough for me. She made the lives of those who loved her both a living hell and also wonderful, and she was an awful bitch who took her recipes to her grave. I will miss her every single day of my life. I'm giving my Queen Elizabeth's mac and cheese five stars.
I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. We'll be back next week.